HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If you lived in New Jersey on August 1st, 1981, and you turned on your TV a few minutes after midnight, there's a chance that you would have come across this. That is Video Killed the Radio Star by Buggles, and it was the very first music video ever played on a fledgling cable network called MTV. Now, this thing, if you haven't seen it, it's really something. It's very low budget, and a we're not sure if this is going to work, so we don't want to throw a lot of money at it sort of way. It's painfully 80s, and the whole thing, both lyrically and visually, is saturated in this paranoia, this sense that what was once pure and good about art and music is being destroyed by the soul-sucking technology of the future, namely, God forbid, the VCR. Now, this music video has survived because it's a piece of pop culture Americana, and not because it's actually, you know, good. But it kickstarted a cultural phenomenon that eventually evolved beyond the music video, beyond music, really, into the real world, and the Osbournes, and Teen Mom, and Beavis and Butthead, and before anybody knew it, Buggles' warning off their album The Age of Plastic was starting to look depressingly real. And, as the range of choices facing Americans move beyond just three channels, beyond a few large retail stores and thin, watery loggers, academics, politicians, and CEOs were left wrestling with an intractable question about American culture. Just what the hell is American culture, anyway? I'm Greg Benson, and this is Backbar. This episode of Back Bar is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy. Stay connected, informed, and inspired to grow your career by visiting diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com today. Welcome back to the show about history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. Today, we're talking about craft beer, which even now is kind of a nebulous term. Like, if you walked up to someone and asked them to define craft beer, more often than not, you'll get an answer about what it isn't than what it is. Sure, it doesn't come from a silver can and spell the word light with an E, but beyond not being Bud, Miller, or Coors, a lot of folks can be pretty foggy about the definition. In fact, for a while there, that definition didn't even exist. 
The term craft beer has been around since the 80s, but for a long time, no one was really sure where to draw the lines that separated the independent players from the big macro brew powerhouses, which led to a lot of debate inside and outside the industry. Finally, in 2006, an all-star board of directors, which included Ken Grossman of Sierra Nevada, Kim Jordan of New Belgium, and Sam Colagioni of Dogfish Head, settled on a definition. They decided that a craft brewery must be traditional and use only time-tested brewing methods and adjuncts that enhance the flavor of beer rather than taking it away. A craft brewery must be independent, with no more than 25% of the company owned by an entity that was not itself a craft brewer. And perhaps most interestingly, a craft brewery must be small, producing no more than 2 million barrels of beer a year. Now, the goalposts have moved considerably since then, but the fact remains the same. In order to call yourself a craft brewer, there is an upper ceiling of how much of your product you can actually brew. And why is that? Why would a trade organization make access to such a lucrative label like craft brewer conditional on the amount of beer that you can make? To get the answer to that question, we have to look at where craft beer started before that term even existed in the first place. This whole, you know, the beginning of this whole story started around 1965. And, and we use that date because that's when Fritz Maytag purchased Anchor Brewing Company in San Francisco. Teresa McCullough is the curator of the American Brewing History Initiative at the National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C., which is a really cool job. But don't take my word for it. That sounds like a really cool job. It, it is. It is a very cool job. <laughs> yes. See? Anyway, back to Fritz Maytag. He was a heir to the Maytag family fortune and, um, and was not really interested in beer, but described himself as a, a tinkerer. He had grown up in Iowa. His dad had given him a, a, a microscope when he was a kid, and he liked, to, um, he, he liked to, to mix things together to see what would happen, as he said. And so um, he was attracted to this kind of struggling brewery uh, in the in the mid 60s that was had been open for a long time, you know, since the 19th century, but was really on the verge of uh, closing. And his entrance into that brewery and in the kind of physical space, you know, he described himself as being really entranced by the the equipment in there. Um, that was really, in many ways, the start of, of everything that followed because he, you know, kind of revitalized this ailing brewery and used that childhood microscope to uh, to, to fix the, the recipes that had been going, you know, been going sour for a long time in that brewery. Um, and, and many years later, um, very, you know, to, to our great honor, he donated that microscope to the American History Museum. You know, by this point in the mid-60s, um, really the landscape of beer was big corporations, you know, those that had been able to survive prohibition, you know, a few decades earlier. Um, there had been a wave of consolidation, uh, you know, following prohibition in the mid 20th century. Um, but when Fritz came in and started to brew European styles that really hadn't been brewed for a long time, if ever, in the United States, he kind of um, woke up this um, this underground contingent of homebrewers who were very excited by what he was doing. That brewery, by the way, later changed its name to Anchor Brewing Company. And yes, it is that Anchor Brewing Company in San Francisco to this day. Like Teresa mentioned, what Fritz was doing caught the eye of several enthusiasts and wannabe brewers who would go on to open businesses of their own, and some of which would even come together as the Brewers Association and define craft beer 40 years later. And once homebrewing was legalized under Jimmy Carter, the market for microbrews started to explode. 
Investor money poured in through the 80s as people with big checks to write took note of the appetite for the beers churned out by these traditional, independent, and yes, small breweries. Because you see, the zeitgeist that Fritz Maytag tapped into of catering to discerning niche interests wasn't just happening in the world of beer. It was happening everywhere. For the past couple of decades, American involvement in organized social groups, everything from the Masons to the Boy Scouts, had been declining on a vast scale. Americans were going to church less, voting less, volunteering less, and generally eschewing large-scale civic organizations for groups that felt more individualized and personal. And people were starting to notice. One of them, a Harvard professor named Robert Putnam, was so alarmed by what he saw as America's declining social capital that he wrote a paper about it called Bowling Alone that became incredibly popular in the 1990s. So much so that he was invited to chew over his ideas at Camp David with the one and only Bill Clinton. Bowling Alone is an academic paper, so it was a bit on the boring side when it was written 25 years ago, and it has really not aged well. Putnam argues that our lack of participation in traditional Norman Rockwelly organizations like the Elks and the Red Cross is responsible for a lack of trust and participation in society, and he lays the blame very explicitly on women in the workplace, changing demographics, increased mobility, and of course, television. Now, this paper was a dry read in the 90s, and these days it can be a particularly tough pill to swallow. So to help things out, I got my friend Colin to read excerpts from it. In character, as the deeply unfulfilled manager of a failing bowling alley in Secaucus, New Jersey. By almost every measure, Americans' direct engagement in politics and government has fallen steadily and sharply over the last generation. Every year, over the last decade or two, millions more have withdrawn from the affairs of their communities. Not coincidentally, Americans have also disengaged psychologically from the politics and government over this era. The proportion of Americans who replied that they, quote, trust the government in Washington only some of the time or almost never has risen steadily from 30% in 1966 to 75% in 1992. Now, I know it sounds like I just cherry-picked that one because it's the most curmudgeonly bit, but trust me, the entire thing reads like that. Here's some more. The bond between any two members of the Sierra Club is less like the bond between any two members of a gardening club and more like the bond between any two Red Sox fans or perhaps any two devoted Honda owners. They root for the same team and they share some of the same interests, but they are unaware of each other's existence. Their ties, in short, are to common symbols, common leaders, and, and perhaps common ideas, but not to one another. The paper's called Bowling Alone, by the way, because in what he calls a more whimsical data point, Putnam notes that while overall bowling was up in post-Reagan America, membership in organized bowling leagues was down, leading him to imagine a societally fractured hellscape where we all just go bowling by ourselves and never talk to anybody the entire time. Which I guess makes it a good thing that his 2021 self never arrived from the future to warn him about Netflix. He also notes that these solo rollers tended to buy way less pizza and 
pertinent to our interests, beer than leagues do. But I also doubt that this was a time when you could find a wet hop IPA at your local bowling alley, so I'm going to just go ahead and say that the two are unrelated. But regardless of what you think of Bowling Alone's conclusions, it is difficult to argue with the data and the larger picture that it draws. The traditional monolith that was American culture was starting to develop some pretty big cracks. At a national conference of retailers in 1987 that counted the presidents of J.C. Penney and Kmart as attendees, the head of a demographics research firm noted that the decline of the middle class and an uptick in education and leisure time had led to a, quote, new diversity and the death of the mass market. A number of these merchants were scrambling to move away from the anything and everything department store model towards highly targeted, highly specialized stores, as another retail consultant forecasts that those who create new markets will obviously be the winners of the 90s. A similar change was afoot with one of Putnam's favorite punching bags, television. When the industry was deregulated in 1984, the unchecked dominance of the big three networks started losing ground to cable channels like CNN, ESPN, MTV, and BET that catered to specific tastes 24-7. Want sports and only sports? News around the clock? Or a channel that finally prioritizes and celebrates people who look like you? There were places to turn now, and a lot of people never turned back. And simultaneously... The same thing was happening in beer. And there's a brewery who I probably will leave nameless. And um, the, the, my equivalent at that brewery, um, and I had a tenuous relationship, I would call it. And very few people zeroed in on that as precisely as Magic Hat Brewing Company's co-founder, Alan Newman. We deal with each other all the time. And we're walking around looking for coffee together. And he turns to me and goes, can I ask you a question? He said, why is it that you go out of your way to alienate so many people? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, you take these positions that alienate, you know, maybe 60, 80% of, of the consumers. I said, well... I'm not going to say you're wrong. I would look at it the other way, though. You know, the 20 to 40 percent who like us, they love us. You know, we own those customers. We're not renting from a bigger pool who will occasionally buy us, but they don't really care about us. Um, and I'll trade, you know, my my 20, 30 percent for your 100 percent any day of the week. And he just, he never could understand that. Alan told me a story about how he and his business partner were touring other breweries before they launched Magic Hat in 1994. He said he remembers, vividly, the first time he walked into a space that wasn't purely industrial or sterile or boring. It had these big copper tanks with a gorgeous patina on them, and it was clear that this space wasn't just designed to make product. It was designed to be admired. That was the moment, Alan said, that he realized he wasn't going to just sell beer. He was going to sell a lifestyle. You know, most of the other breweries would, would go for the quick, easy uh, beer accounts, and, and um, they, they were happy with, you know, being a mile wide and an inch deep. We were more focused on being a mile deep and an inch wide. And so I think that also helped us a lot. Um, because we built roots into the communities. 
What Alan's talking about here is a simple calculus. It's the same math that executives at JCPenney and Kmart and MTV and ESPN and even Robert Putnam were all doing. If you have three ways to spend your Saturday afternoon, let's say hunting, bowling, or choir practice, you're going to spend it doing the thing you like the most, or maybe hate the least. But if you have 300 ways to spend your Saturday, you're not going to pick the thing you just kind of like. You're going to spend your time doing a thing you love. That means specialization. That means a hobby that feels like it was crafted just for you, tailored to fit your exact lifestyle. And that means loyalty. We hired salespeople um, for their passion for music on the belief that if they were passionate about music, they could talk to our core customers. We can teach them about beer and we can teach them to love beer, but we can't teach them about music. They have to come to us with music. So when we started going outside the state and we started going to the um, to, we would start by going into the music venues in, in every city we went to, the bars that, that focused on music. And because we were passionate about music, we could start relationships with those people talking about something that they loved, music. And then we didn't even have to sell our beer. Even big beer started to take notice. In October of 1994, the same year that Allen and his partners launched, a group of Budweiser executives and distributors who'd gathered for an annual meeting found something unusual waiting for them. A young brand manager named Tim Schoen, who'd spent his summer touring microbreweries in the Pacific Northwest, passed out baseball caps with fake ponytails attached to the back. A joke that all the starchy executives, including Augie Bush III, all had a pretty good laugh at. But these magic hats came with a warning. Craft beer wasn't just creeping into big beer's market share on the basis of clever slogans and secret recipes. It was catching on because it wasn't just beer. It was a way of life. So we made a rule. Uh, never will we say um, made only with all natural ingredients. We said we're not going to name ourselves after a geographic area or we're not going to name it after us. Um, and we're going to focus on a lifestyle like Tim Schoen said to a room full of men in slacks and fake ponytails, it feels different because it is different. And being different meant being cool. It meant being chic. It meant knowing about that one restaurant or that one brewery that other people hadn't heard of yet. It meant being small, intimate, exclusive. And exclusion has consequences. That's coming up after the break. So this might sound crazy, but this February, Diageo Bar Academy turns 10 years old. 10. And it's funny to think back where I was 10 years ago. I just started at my first official bar job. If you don't count the speakeasy, I ran out of my place in college and I was a fresh-faced 22-year-old American living in Scotland. Nowadays, my face isn't quite as fresh, and as I celebrate a decade in the industry I love, Diageo Bar Academy is marking 120 million bar professionals in 178 countries trained, educated, and inspired to grow their careers. 
Whether you're a bartender, barback, or manager, or even if you're totally new to the industry, Diageo Bar Academy has easy-to-access resources to help you learn new skills or stay in the loop with all the latest industry trends. This month, to celebrate their 10th anniversary, you can log on and check out Top Trends for 2022, inspiration for seasonal recipes and low and no ABV serves, thousands of specs for all styles of cocktails, masterclasses available on demand, and weekly newsletters to keep you in the know. The best part? It's all available 24-7 for absolutely free. Just think of it as a little birthday present to you. So stay connected, informed, and inspired by logging on to DiageoBarAcademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com today. In 2004, Bon Appetit, the magazine which for decades had championed fine dining and the heights of cuisine, announced that their dish of the year was the hamburger. The humble, easily replicable, drive through accessible hamburger. And they were serious. A shift was in play across the world of food journalism that had started in the 90s but really kicked into high gear after the turn of the millennium. Publications that had previously devoted themselves to haute cuisine were covering a wider range of restaurants and cooking styles than they ever had before. And eaters started scavenger hunting for that one place they heard about where they make that one thing just right. And unlike before, when you could brag about scoring a table at Le Bernardine on a Friday night, suddenly knowing about that hole-in-the-wall Momo shack in Jackson Heights behind the cell phone store was even cooler. And the same thing was happening to beer. You know, I have on my I have on my wall at um, the American History Museum, and there is a frame that I framed it. It's a cover of the New Yorker, and it's a uh, um, it's an image of like a, a server in a restaurant, and he's displaying a bottle of beer to a man and a woman who are sitting in a restaurant, and, you know, he looks like a, a sommelier. That's Teresa McCullough again from the Smithsonian. He's displaying it like a wine bottle, and it's just, it's a kind of send-up of the, you know, the the snooty culture of craft beer. I just found it very funny. Beer. Humble, cheap, ubiquitous beer wasn't just something you slugged down at a party or chased with pizza anymore. It was a way to be cool. Eventually, you know, as time went on and as the microbrewing industry became the craft brewing industry, you know, I think like a lot of other aspects of that same history, it became, you know, more of an elite status symbol. I mean, I, uh, you know, I spoke with a brewer very recently um, at Union Brewing Company in, in Baltimore who acknowledged very openly, you know, today craft beer is a luxury product. It's it is not um, it's it's a, a choice that we make to spend this amount of money on this kind of beer when we go to the store and to you know enjoy it in the ways that we do at the times we do. Beer was hip and classy, and it had become a luxury product in a weird way because of how unluxurious it was. The same thing was happening in the world of food and even music. We're seeking out things that had previously been considered common or lowbrow, like country or pop or hamburgers, was a new way to flash status and give a teeny tiny middle finger to foie gras and the opera at the same time. Being told what to like was out, and knowing what you liked with a hefty swagger of fuck you individualism was in. Of course, it wasn't long before Big Beer wanted in on the action. 
By the mid-2000s, Anheuser-Busch, the parent company behind Budweiser, owned significant chunks of longtime craft brewers like Widmer Brothers, Kona, and Goose Island, and several industry experts predicted, correctly, that the trend wasn't going to reverse itself anytime soon. Fearing for the future of their industry amid rapidly muddying waters, the Brewers Association came forward to officially define craft beer with those three characteristics we discussed earlier. That it was traditional, independent, and small. And the public ate it up. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there was a, a romanticism in, in, uh, in the idea of uh, a small brewery, you know, of a, of a lone brewer or or two, you know, laboring to produce these small batches and producing something that would be exclusive. And um, yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and that's the kind of mythos of, uh, of microbrew beer and craft beer that, um, that others have begun to really think about and write about. But while being small and independent and feisty is cool, it isn't exactly business friendly. And, you know, I think some brewers now, when I speak with them, they are inspired by these earlier microbrewers and microbreweries or, you know, kind of this earlier ethos of this idea of kind of, you know, fighting against the man, fighting against the giant of big beer and, you know, doing something a bit quixotic that's not, you know, a, you know, a small kind of operation that doesn't seem like it should make sense financially or, or whatever, but, you know, that they're, they've got this idea of, of, you know, making something with their hands that makes other people happy. And this, to me, is the central paradox of craft beer, something I've never understood. Sure, that lone, independent, fiercely artisanal brewer is cool, but the Brewers Association is a trade group. Why would they want to put caps on the amount of beer a craft brewery can make? And why would they go out of their way and spend all that money and all that time and all that effort branding craft as small when the goal of a business, any business, is growth? So I decided to ask Alan. But craft beer has made being small and secretive so integral to its identity. What's more interesting, I'm sorry for interrupting, but what's even more interesting is it's self-defeating. It's a manufacturing business. And what and, and I'm gonna put the blame at the feet of the Vermont Brewers Association. They're the ones who, in my opinion, have taken craft industry down. They've been encouraging, water's fine, come on in. Everybody should come on in. It doesn't matter quality control. They preach quality control, but they never set any rules. They never, they never really delineated, you know, things that would protect the industry. And they really focused on bringing in all the small little brewers whose business models were not sustainable. I should note here that the Vermont Brewers Association and the Brewers Association are separate entities, and that Teresa McCullough's position at the Smithsonian is made possible through a grant from the Brewers Association, the national one. For that, and for her time and expertise, I am incredibly grateful. But of course, when it comes to the organization as a whole, opinions are varied. What you quickly find out is that it's manufacturing, and manufacturing is about scale. And I don't care what you're, what you're making. If you can't do it, if you can't be competitive with the market leader price-wise, you can never catch that market leader. And in order to get price competitive with the market leader, you've got to be producing at scale, because scale is where you can make savings. And so the concept that if you get big, 
you're there for a sellout, means that the, all the craft breweries created an industry for Anheuser-Busch InBev and Miller Coors to come in and take over because they've got scale. And small breweries can't touch that. Um, and it always struck me as just bizarre. Now, there are people that will, but that number is smaller. And so you, that company can never get the scale unless they raise a lot of money to lose money until they build scale up. And so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that um, large as a sellout means the industry um, will be doomed to failure. Why? <laughs> like why why would we why would we why would we build this culture of success is bad? Two reasons. Um I, I the answer to your question is I really don't know. Um so I'm just here shooting the shit with you. Um couple reasons. Um a lot of the small breweries, small brewery owners, um, especially in the early days, were engineers, they weren't business people. And they were struggling to get their business going, and they didn't understand how to accelerate their business. And so there was a jealousy about anybody who figured out um, how to grow their business. Then the Vermont Brewers Association came along, and they promoted small is beautiful. They really, you know, in many ways, like Trump has given rise to, to racism and, and to the Q movement, um, because he's told these lies over and over and over again. This is an industry that welcomes everybody. It's all about your beer. You make great beer, you got a solid run here. And it's just not true. Um, and so I think somewhere in those two areas, um, and then it became, it became the belief of the customer that big meant sellout. Um, you know, that's the best I can do. Uh, it, it, it's always boggled my mind. And yet, that's only part of the problem. Because keeping breweries small doesn't just cut them off from potential product, it cuts them off from potential customers. Because as interests in beer, and for that matter, food, fashion, movies, music, and TV became more niche, and those niche interests make up more and more of our social networks, it's only a matter of time before people wind up only spending time with people who look and talk and think like them. It's a problem that was identified by, of all people, Robert Putnam and our favorite bowling alley manager. Small groups may not be fostering community as effectively as many of their proponents would like. Some small groups merely provide occasions for seven individuals to focus on themselves in the presence of others. The social contract binding members together asserts only the weakest of obligations. Come if you have time. Talk if you feel like it. Respect everyone's opinion. Never criticize. Leave it quietly if you become dissatisfied. We can imagine that these small groups really substitute for families, neighborhoods, and broader community attachments that may demand lifelong commitments when, in fact, they do not. One of the key tenets of bowling alone is that when you're part of a bigger group that stretches across multiple demographics, you are going to interact with people who aren't like you. Societal cohesion, the theory goes, comes from building close ties with people you didn't necessarily choose, like the people in your neighborhood or on the PTA. But small groups don't have to do that. And because they're very 
very selective about the things they like, they can be very, very selective about what kinds of people get to enjoy them. Yeah, the, the notion of something small and, and uh, you know, the, 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 the smallness of uh, small size of breweries is, is very important. But, you know, I think it's important to consider what, what is the, the flip side of that. The flip side is this idea that this kind of beer is exclusive and that, you know, not maybe not everybody can get their hands on it, but also not everybody can afford it. And, you know, even more recently, there's been talk of, um, you know, kind of the exclusivity of craft beer in terms of, uh, you know, just a kind of a framework of knowledge. I mean, if you if you go into a, a you know a tap room or a, you know shelves of a store and see, you know, I don't know five kinds of uh, you know double dry hopped you know IPAs or you know th- things that aren't really legible to to consumers who aren't very well versed in beer, it's uh, it's a turnoff. To, for people to feel like they don't know what to pick. You know, this is all well and good for the people who feel welcome in those places, for the people who feel welcome in those tap rooms. But we know from survey, from the demographic data of brewing, which is is not diverse right now uh, and has not been diverse. And, uh, you know, this is a, this is, you know, if we want to speak plainly, tap rooms are not welcoming to everyone. And even if brewers um, want them to be, and, and some are working consciously to make them welcoming in a place where truly everyone can feel like it is their third space. Um, but, you know, the, the, the numbers show us that's not, that's not currently the case. There's one more passage from Bowling Alone that I want to have Colin read before we go. And even though it's about as okay boomer as the entire thing gets, there's a prescience to it that I can't quite shake off. Television has made our communities, or rather what we experience as our communities, wider and shallow. In the language of economics, electronic technology enables individual tastes to be satisfied more fully, but at the cost of the positive social externalities associated with more primitive forms of entertainment. The same logic applies to the replacement of vaudeville by the movies and now of movies by the VCR. The new virtual reality helmets that we will soon don to be entertained in total isolation are merely the latest extension of this trend. Is technology thus driving a wedge between our individual interests and our collective interests? It is a question that seems worth exploring. Yes, it's objectively funny to listen to academics from 30 years ago wring their hands over the knock-on effects of VR helmets. But replace the words virtual reality with Newsmax and the warnings about being entertained in total isolation go from being funny to scary. Because the thing is, if you look past all the tut-tutting and finger-wagging, all the white patriarchal nostalgia and Nancy Reagan moralizing, Robert Putnam's points about small, siloed groups being bad for society? They're right. Alan Newman left Magic Hat in 2010, and last year, Magic Hat left Vermont. Their new parent company moved all the operations to upstate New York, but before they did, Alan took a tour of the brewery one last time. And if you don't keep keep changing it, you just like it end up like Magic Hat. Magic Hat did not do a single thing new after I left. Um, when they were trying to sell the brewery, I took a tour through it, and it was like I'd gone back in time. 
you know, it looked exactly as I left it. Um, they hadn't changed any of the signage. They hadn't changed any of the, the, the marketing or the branding. Um, they're still producing the same beers. They were pulling the same beers out of the history. And it's like, you know, they were a moment in time. You got to keep moving. And um, good lesson, I think. You got to keep moving. And there's hope that the industry is moving, maybe in the right direction this time. Teresa and I talked about a number of organizations like the Pink Boots Society, Beer Culture, Fresh Fest, Suave Fest, and the Michael Jackson Foundation. Not that Michael Jackson, though. Don't worry. That have been working to highlight diversity in the craft beer industry. And the Brewers Association has raised that barrel cap over the years. Granted, at least partially to keep up with Yingling and the Boston Beer Company, but still, it's a sign that change is possible. That we don't have to stay an inch wide and a mile deep and that we can open ourselves up to new ideas and welcome people from outside of our niches inside of them. That's how I feel on my good days. On my bad days, I wonder, did we pay too steep a price to have our needs catered to in such a specific way? Is the cost of independent craft beer an entrenched morass of identity politics that pits one half of the country against the other half forever? Are we so in love with our own needs and wants and TV shows that we might never find our way back to common ground? Or, to put it another way, in my mind and in my car, we can't rewind We've gone too far. Pictures came and broke your heart. Video killed the radio star. This episode of Backbar was written, researched, and directed by me, Greg Benson, with engineering support from Matt Patterson and Michael Edwin, and research assistance from Zoe Denkla. Our artwork is by Alicia Chan, and our music is by Ryan Laney. Thanks this week to our fantastic guests, Teresa McCullough and Alan Newman, and to the actor who played the part of my friend Colin, my friend, Colin Connor. Thank you so much for listening to HRN, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Follow me on Instagram at 100proofgreg. That's 100 with numbers, not letters. And you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. HRN is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Do you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, like, say, this one right here. Tell your friends, and please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top of our homepage. Tune in next time when Backbar goes tropical, and we explore the flip side of fantasy and escapism. That's when we return for more of history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. 
Cheers. <laughs>